You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. In this episode, we discuss real estate investing and due diligence that investors should perform, as well as how investor demographics and their behavior can have a huge effect on their overall returns. Great. Welcome, everybody. This is James Barron with CASA. This is Alternative Thinking. Today, we have Sandy Pokler with Firm Capital and Darren Coleman, who's returning from uh, Raymond James. So uh, let's start with self-intros. Let's start with you, Sandy, and uh, tell us what, what you've been up to throughout your, your long career and uh, what, what Firm is doing. Sure thing. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Sandy Pokler, the Chief Operating Officer of Firm Capital Corporation. Firm Capital is a real estate asset management firm with $5 billion of assets under management, all predominantly in, in mortgages and real estate. Approximately $1.6 billion of our AUM is in mortgages. Our typical mortgages are short-term bridge and mezzanine financings that we do for real estate, residential real estate developers predominantly. All of our mortgages are originated in-house and they're syndicated between various private funds as well as our publicly mortgage, uh, mortgage investment corporation, Firm Capital Mortgage Investment Corporation. The ticker symbol is, is FC on the TSX. All of our mortgages that we originate internally and that we syndicate are all peri so nobody gets an override or, or a positive carry above anyone else. And as I mentioned, we focus on short-term bridge and mezzanine lending. We focus on areas of lending that the banks do not do. So in other words, we don't compete with the banks. We focus on residential real estate in core markets for developers and owners of residential properties. The remainder of our, of our AUM, about $3.5 billion, is in real estate. Mm-hmm. We typically own internally about 5,000 apartment units in both Canada and the U.S., about 3.5 million square feet of, of industrial, another 3.5 million square feet of retail. And again, our typical model is internally as we originate a, a, a real estate transaction, we syndicate, again, through various private vehicles and joint ventures, as well as to two public vehicles, Firm Capital Property Trust, which is on the venture exchange under the ticker, uh, ticker symbol FCD.UN, which mm-hmm. is on com- focused on Canadian commercial real estate and firm capital apartment REIT, which is, is a dual listed symbol also in the venture exchange FCA.UN.UN. That's typically that's focused on apartments in the multi-residential space in the U.S. in high growth markets like Texas, Florida, Georgia and New York. Wow, that was a great overview. Thanks. That's uh, I, as you were saying that I was kind of like, what should I ask next? And then you you kept on covering. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, how's, how's like the commercial real estate been? Let's get right into the COVID thing here at uh, in the fun times that we've had. Um, and then and then overall, you, you said, how, what's your overall AUM? One point six billion in lending. Yeah, so it's, it's the, the the overall AUM is five billion, one point six mm-hmm. into mortgages, and the residual three point four is into real estate. Got it. Um, and in terms of your question about the commercial real estate, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on the areas that people have been invested in on the commercial side, determine how what their outcomes were going to be on the um, 
on, on collections, on occupancies and so forth. So in our particular case, we're focused on grocery anchored retail uh, assets, small bay industrial properties, as well as multi-residential real estate. That, that's the core of our business on, on the real estate mm -hmm. ownership side. And all of those assets are you know, needs-based real estate, um, places to live, grocery anchored, obviously for groceries, and an industrial, which has become effectively the hybrid for work as well as for retail, um, given that everything has gone online. The reality is all those assets during the, the during the pandemic did really well. Our collections were well over ninety percent of rent. Um, anyone that we were that had difficulties, we worked with in, in, in dealing with their rent rental situation. But the, we collected the vast majority of our expected rent over those periods, and it's because again we were focused on needs based real estate. You know, if you were in the call it um, fashion retail space. Mm -hmm. And so forth. You that's that you know those areas you know office market th those are the areas that we're, we're obviously going to have some trouble, um, without a doubt. Yeah, I like how you mentioned too about everything being peri passu because we have public vehicles, private vehicles, all these different types of of uh, of structures and and ways to to offer your funds. And it's uh, yeah, it's important to have that that governance in there that you know you don't have some yeah some some special special deals for people depending on how they're getting in. So I really like that. Yeah. And then maybe just one more before we get to uh, Darren there, you have like Texas, Florida, Georgia, New York. Uh, stick with those for for the near 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 future, maybe forever. Or are you looking at you know, California too? I guess Texas is kind of hoovering up all the Californians. But. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, overall, we, we've always been invested in, in these states pr prior to COVID mm -hmm. um, in light because of, and they, they are typically the red states. You know, in the U.S., you have red states and blue states based on political lines. Red states typically from, from a real estate perspective do not have the rent controls that you would have in a blue state. So for example, in a Texas, you can mark to market the rents every year as the leases mature on, on, on multi-residential. You can evict the tenant within 30 to 60 days if they don't pay their rent. Whereas in, the, in, in, in New York, you have significant rent controls that prevent you to do a lot of these things. So the, the flight of capital into these states has been significant over the number of years. We love those states. There are other states like that in the union in in the u.s and mm -hmm. we're, we're so our attention is to be focused in those other states that being said will there come a time that we could go into a california perhaps depending on where the right parameters are in terms of investing criteria um, as well as returns relative to the risk of the investment very cool uh let's go to darren he's mr transporter too or cross-border so let's uh, <laughs> what's been happening with you since since our last podcast, since the last time we spoke, uh, you've been you've been busy as a beaver back then. I imagine you still are, right, Derek. Uh, yeah, so we run a significant cross border practice. So we're we're licensed as wealth managers, financial advisors, both in Canada and the U.S. And you know, with the border being closed, it actually surfaced a lot of complexity for people that have money or family on both sides of the border. And uh, complexity is what we do. We're really good at complicated. So our practice has been growing. We've added new members to our team. Um, we've been recognized uh, nationally. Global Mail and Shook Research recently uh, published a list of the top 150 advisors in Canada, and I was I was quite uh, gratified to be on that list. So that oh, was yeah, great. Sure. We don't do this for recognition. We just want clients to be happy, but it's nice to mm -hmm. be noticed. Um, I'm quite happy to do this call and this chat today with Sandy. I've been involved with, uh, with Firm Capital, gotten to know management, and I will say clients have generally been very, very pleased with what we've received from them. And I think we've learned in our relationship with firm and what we've seen in doing due diligence on other products, 
how to be, I think, pretty good investors uh, with Fern. Mm. And so I hope today we can kind of share a little bit of kind of what we've seen, give some of our perspective. And and and, and as I'm interested in hearing from Sandy also on what they've been up to, because uh, we're very actively involved as investors with Fern about what they're doing. So, uh, so this will be a good chat today. Yeah. And it's uh, like as Sandy was saying, you know, my old saw from the 2008 was like boring is a new sexy. So all these things that people have to do, like go to the grocery store, that's probably a really good thing to invest in over times of trouble. Um, and now the, the, the kind of the, the interesting thing that people are talking about a lot is, you know, this cryptocurrency and all these kinds of things. we're probably not going to go too much into that unless you really want to, but, uh, you know, you have, but the whole idea of that is inflation and yeah. the, yeah. the big, uh, you know, the, the hedges on inflation, like gold, real estate, all the other things, the traditional types of assets. So are you hearing that from your, your clientele? Are they, are they into that? Cause I think what was the last, the last print was 4.3%, which uh, I'm like, holy crap. Like I, reminds <laughs> me when I was a kid in the seventies and we started talking about inflation. Like, well, here's the thing, like the inflation, they can tell me whatever they want, but the reality is when you print $14 trillion in the U S alone and velocity falls off a cliff, like yep. every piece of the recipe inflation is is now baked in the cake so if you don't think we're going to get inflation hard you didn't read a textbook or look at a chart and you know one thing that you know and the crypto conversation is an interesting one I, i've been trying to do my due diligence on crypto and every time i look at it i come away thinking i probably should just invest in aluminum foil for my hat because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things i don't understand and it's like trying to grab smoke every time i think i understand some of it it kind of disappears and i got to go back to it and I think what we've seen is the the investors that would traditionally have gone to gold and precious metals as their inflation hedge, they've all moved to crypto uh, as as the store of value conversation. And I, I I understand that component of it. There's things I confess I don't understand, but I can appreciate why they've gone to that. Um, but in our practice, like remember, we're not looking at investments for the sake of looking at investments. I'm trying to solve a problem that clients are going to have. We have a private client business, not an institutional business. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually trying to solve problems for real people that are going to spend the money to fund their lifestyle. And, you know, as clients have gone through the life cycle of, you know, they, they, they get their first jobs, they get married, they have families, they, you know, or maybe they don't, that was a very cisgendered conversation I just gave you there. But the reality is, yeah. as people go through that, that life cycle, uh, you know, they, they go through an accumulation phase where they have to invest to create the capital base upon which they're going to retire on. And so we're kind of going through this maturation where, you know, this accumulation phase for most people is over now or about to be ending. And so we've now helped them reach the point of having a comfortable retirement. The next change is how do we help them to stay comfortably retired? And this particular mm-hmm. audience, these baby boomers, if you will, um, they're uniquely different than their parents. Their parents came into the world programmed by their parents and their grandparents that that risk was ca- catastrophic loss. Risk was losing everything. Risk was tanks rolling down the street yeah risk was, babies, you must, yeah. yeah you have to flee your homeland you have to emigrate to a safe country and and world wars happen and you know complete and total economic loss is not just a possibility but that's been our life experience the baby boomers that's generally not been their life experience normally right mm-hmm. now i say that and i'm i'm and sandy's croatian i'm croatian by marriage um and so for my in-laws that was their life experience but for most baby boomers born and raised in north america their concept of risk is not what their parents was their concept of risk ought to correctly be lack of purchasing power loss of purchasing power erosion of purchasing power and i asked them what was what did your first job pay you when you were 15 or 16 or 17 what did your first 
you know, car cost you? What did your first suit cost you? What did your first job pay you? Oh, and, I can and tell you all first... that. <laughs> yeah, scary. well, you're only 22, so you know these things. Um, <laughs> and and what, did, uh, what did your first house cost? And what are all those things today? And when they look back, they're like, wow, I, I now, and what's happening is they're going into this concept of retirement with the wrong set of ammunition, with the wrong belief system, with the wrong paradigm. They're going into with their grandparents' paradigm which is I have to protect against capital loss and we have to educate mm -hmm. them, which is astonishing that actually you need to worry about protecting income, not capital. That's a fundamentally different view. And I have to share with people, look, if you want me to build you a portfolio that will protect you from capital loss, that's not the same portfolio as one that will protect your income from erosion. Mm. It's a very different construct. And that, and we have two other factors that the investors need to pay attention to now the first one is you're going to live longer and more expensively than you think and we've done a lot of work in this area on longevity around how long are people going to live they all think they're going to die when they were grandma's age no the fastest growing cohort are women over age 100. like oh. when people have a 100th birthday it's no longer in the news right it's pretty normal now we've all, so, we've all become japan yeah yeah, they're going to live longer than anybody thought and they're more expensively than everybody thought. And they don't want to go into nursing homes because COVID. They want to stay at home and age at home. And they're in better physical shape than we've ever seen. Right. Um, and on top of that, as we mentioned it earlier, the all the seeds for incredible inflation have been put in place as a result of response to COVID. Right. You know, when when countries have issued, you know, 14, 18 trillion dollars of new money and we start to see velocity kick back up. Well, wow. I don't know if this is going to be the 70s again, but you better be geared up for along with the productivity and or sorry, the production and distribution challenges like that bottle of ketchup or whatever you want to buy is going to get more expensive, assuming you can even get it. Because here's a newsflash. No one's getting a PlayStation 5 for Christmas. Okay, so huh? what we look at as investors is, OK, how do I solve this problem for people? And yes, I have been apologizing to people that I didn't put all of their money in Tesla this year. Sorry, didn't go to that particular slot machine with all of your money. <laughs> but we, you're, you mentioned something earlier, James, which is these old ideas, if you will, of like invest like a landlord. People understand that emotionally. So that's what we tried to do. Let's let's find some very common sense, very well managed, very logical business strategies and opportunities and have very good execution. And that's why years ago when uh, it was actually a client of mine who, who borrows from firm capital, that's how I actually met the firm capital guys, a client of mine mm -hmm. was a home builder. And, and he said, Darren, I want you to look at firm capital because I borrow from these guys. And, you know, this was at a time where that was a very bizarre thing for me to be looking at in like 2008. Like, what? This Didn't this just stuff blow up the world? I don't know if I want to go into lending. And he said, mm -hmm. you don't understand their business. So I can tell you more of that story later. But we began looking at it from a place of great skepticism. Um, and I had to be convinced that uh, the, the, the structures we were looking at, the, the returns we were looking at, um, the style of investing we're looking at was was as great as it turned out to actually be. So we've been very pleased investors for a long time. That's awesome. Well, yeah, skepticism is a good place to start versus as a place to end. So that's uh, that's very cool. Hey, yeah, yeah you meant you about Sandy here. Um, Darren was talking about how you know people have kind of glommed onto this crypto thing and all these other things, and then they've they've uh, you know I don't think they've ignored real estate, but how the valuations been in real estate? Obviously, you know price of houses have gone up around around everybody uh pretty much can't think of anybody that's lost money in residential real estate the last five or ten years or even last 30 seconds but uh how how are valuations in your portfolio and maybe the yield that you might kick off of it uh yeah no, thank you um so first off i want to thank darren for the very kind words um about uh what we've done here internally um 
but that being said, I think that to to your question, James, overall on turn in terms on the valuation side, without a doubt, valuations have, for lack of a better word, exploded during the pandemic. And it's because in part because of the, the printing of money that's been pumped into the system the, the mm-hmm. last almost two years now. Um, so naturally speaking, and, and people people don't realize, I think, in terms of the banking system as a whole, when the government prints money, the banks have to lend it out. And they've been lending it out at record amounts. I, I know a, a more, I know mortgage brokers right now, for example, out, that are working at the banks that have just never done bigger business than they are these days. And as a result, valuations have exploded. There's no question. I, I, I mean, to put it in context, uh, a single family home in, in cottage country, so let's say Collingwood, which is, you know, a B market, if you will, is at a same valuation point today as was Toronto, say, two years ago. For a Whoa. similar product, yeah. Wow. So, for example, and to put it in context, if you want to buy a, a one-bedroom, one-bath condo in Collingwood near Georgian Bay, it's five hundred to six hundred thousand dollars today. What? And yes, I can't even I'm, picture I'm a condo sure. in Collingwood, let, let alone. <laughs> yeah, they do exist, and you know they are in in demand. And 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 that same unit prior to the pandemic would have been $300,000. So you're seeing a massive explosion of real estate valuations because of the record amount of printing of money. So there's no question that on the residential side, you will see a day of reckoning come when the renewals happen, when the Bank of Canada has to start raising interest rates to fight the inflation. Um, How many rates hikes they will do in the next few year, it's hard to tell, but they will have to, without a doubt, have to start raising rates. Otherwise inflation will, will, just continue to, to explode, if you will. Um, so we are seeing valuations on the residential side. Um, on our on our real estate that we own here internally, just from a cap rate uh, perspective, you know, industrial real estate today are it's the same valuations that you would have saw in multi-residential real estate two years ago. So to put it in context, two years ago, multi-residential real estate was selling in, in the GTA at two to three two to 3% cap rates. You're seeing that in the industrial space uh, today. Um, in the U.S., on our multi-residential product, um, pieces of real estate that we acquired just a few years ago at five, six, seven and a half cap rates are now in the three to four percent range. If you were to buy a similar product, when we go out and bid on product today, we're getting beaten badly um, by other groups that are just buying the product, and 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 again, they're using cash that's being printed by the Fed in the U.S. Um, to go out and buy product. So we are seeing a, a true, you know, spike in values. Um, you know, whether that's sustainable or not over the long term, it's hard to tell in, in the U.S., for example. But, you know, when again, when the government's printing money, when the, the Fannie and Freddie Mae, uh, Freddie Mac, if you will, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, uh, again, putting out money at 75 to 80% loan to values, you know, it, it gets, it has to get placed and, there is, as a result, a spike in valuations that, you're, that we are seeing. There's no question about it. And we're seeing it right across the board. Um, in, in, from what, Just on the real estate that we own, as well as even on the lending side. I mean, and, and as a result of that a cre- increase in value, our lending business, while we've been putting out more money, we've been doing it I, I can, more cons- increasingly conservative loan to values, figuring that there will be a correction over time. Wow. When I went to school, we had uh, my 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 uh, econ prof Herbert Grubel, one of the hundred most famous in the world, apparently, uh, as he would tell us, 
His license plate was MVPQ, so money supply times the velocity is the uh, the GDP of the country and the you know the price times the quantity, and um, you know it just goes to tell, like you, like uh, Darren was saying like velocity drops and but the money supply keeps pumping. So okay, you're trying to keep that PQ steady, the GDP relatively steady, or at least have it not drop. Uh, but when the velocity starts ramping up, then it's only going to go one way. Um, well, and if you want to have some fun with that, if people want to just go on mm -hmm. Google and pull up the website for Fred, the Federal Reserve, and just pull up charts of money supply and then pull up the, which you will see goes from like 1960 on a relatively steady growth and it gets to 2000 and it just spikes like a skyscraper. Yeah. That's astonishing to see that. And then you look at the other chart of velocity and since like 1980, it's been going along, it goes up, drifts down, you get to 2020 and it falls to basically zero because mm -hmm. we shut everything down. So there's the formula. Right. One part of the formula, the fuel, if you will, the money supply is beyond anything anyone I think ever could possibly anticipate. The chart is astonishing. And then the other part of the formula, the engine that's turning, the velocity has stopped. But as soon as that comes back, as it's beginning to, you tell me what's going to happen. I don't think you need a Ph.D. in finance to go, oh, if I put those two together, what might happen? Uh, and so whenever yeah. I hear these gurus and, and guys in the press and the politicians saying, oh, we think inflation is transitory. And I'm like, um, none of you apparently read a textbook or looked at a couple of simple charts. That's not possible. And we also know, especially as consumers, that inflation is a bit of a ratchet effect. Like once it goes up, it never seems to go down. If they can get you to spend an extra 50 cents for that coffee or, you know, an extra 25 cents for that loaf of bread or whatever, it never goes backwards. It doesn't feel right. It just, no. once they've got you spending it, even if their input costs go down, they'll just take it as extra margin. So um, the reality for the consumer, for the individual is that you had better get prepared for a much higher cost of living, which is why we always say that really inflation and the, the risk to to your your retirement is your debit card. It's not the stock market like we can handle volatility. We can have strategies for that. But your debit card, your visa card, that's the problem. So and that's what leads us to say, OK, how do we create portfolios where the underlying investment pretty much by its nature delivers a higher return over time with inflation? And and people intuitively, this is what also why we like from capital. People understand if I'm borrowing and the borrowing rate is floating, well, if rates go up, I'll get paid more. They understand that. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. Sandy comment a little bit how that's been structured into their portfolios. And they also understand that you should probably be a landlord. And I think going forward, you're going to see a very significant wealth gap between those who own stuff and those who don't own stuff. And you've right. already watched that in residential housing in, in the GTA where I live. Uh, if, if you own your home, your wealth is, has increased dramatically in the last several years. If you didn't, it hasn't. That's about as simple as you need to be able to understand it. Now, I'm not suggesting people chase and you know, go buy townhouses for $3 million or something, but certainly if you've been an owner and you've owned good quality real estate, good quality assets, the wind has been at your back. And I think that's going to continue. So how do you deal with that, Sandy? How do you deal with hyperinflation, deflation, and interest rates uh, so that you can protect your investors from these types of markets, which could very well occur? So that's a great question. I think you have to look at, you know, both of our businesses separately, but at the you know, combined at the same time, but separately. On the mortgage side, you know, how we can put, you know, deal with inflation is, is very straightforward. We, we, with inflation, you get higher interest rates over the long term. So our mortgages are designed in such a way that if, if interest rates rise, we capture the upside on interest. And likewise, as because we, we typically do short-term bridge and mezzanine financings with 
mortgages that roll over a year to 18 uh, months to two years. Yeah. We're capturing the upside and the mark to market on, on interest rates as we roll over the mortgages into new, newer transactions. So if interest rates rise, we'll capture the upside with the existing mortgages, as well as we, we, go, we take that money back when, they're, when the mortgages are redeemed, we'll put, in, put that money back to work at higher rates. Um, so that's how we'll, we'll protect ourselves on the inflationary side from the mortgage side. On the real estate side, you know, if, on a short-term basis, you know, all of our leases effectively on our commercial side, as well as our residential side, are effectively hedges to inflation. So on the residential side, leases are typically one year. So if, mm -hmm. if interest rates rise, um, then and inflation rises as well, along with interest rates, again, we'll capture the upside um, through higher rents over the long term, right? As the, as the leases mature and we're able to get, you know, higher rates from our existing tenants as well as new tenants. Mm. On the commercial side, that typically takes a little bit longer. That typically takes three to five years as those mortgages burn off. But once they do, we capture the upside as well. And, and again, our hedge on the commercial side is we typically, and as I mentioned, the tenancies that we have are grocery anchored retail. So, you know, our top tenants, are, for example, are Sobeys, uh, Loblaws, Metro, again, great covenant tenants, but we capture the upside on inflation. Likewise, on the industrial side, we've seen a dramatic spike in rents over the even prior to COVID. So typically, to give you some context, mm -hmm. typical GTA rents, net rents, um, prior to the pandemic were 3 to $4 a square foot for an industrial space. As the before the pandemic started, and as we saw the uh, the call it the increase of, of online demand from retail and retail, you know where industrial industrial space being used as a hybrid for retail for mm. providers of, of shipping product and so forth and producing product, we saw the rent starting to rise. So we we, we when we went from three to four dollars a square foot, we saw four, five, and six dollars net. Now because wow. of COVID. We're seeing seven, eight, nine dollars in rent, net rents per square foot, and if not higher. Um, and so we're capturing that upside as the leases mature, um, which give us better cash flow visibility, higher cash flows, and bigger distributions over the long term for our investors. Um, in, in terms of the capital side, every deal that we do, we typically every acquisition that we do, whether it's a more a residential real estate piece of real estate or commercial, we try to get the, the cheapest long ter longest term debt that we possibly can from a conventional bank in the case of commercial and either through CMHC or through Fannie and Freddie in the US mm -hmm. um, for our residential real um, assets as well. And we try to go as long on the curve as possible so that our rates are locked in as, as long as possible so we can earn the spread, if you will. That's great. Well, it reminds me of IBM. I think they 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 consistently issued hundred year bonds at the bottom of the rate cycle. And they happened to, they were like, they were masters of that. And, uh, I, although it's not floating, but you have, yeah, you got some pretty, pretty short duration. That's good. So can I jump in? I, I wouldn't mind asking Sandy a question. So Sandy, we sometimes get questions around the operations of, uh, some of the products that you have. So one of the questions we sometimes get, and I, I think I know the answer to it, but I'll let you do it for real is, um, the use of debt as a, as a, relates to the REIT products, for example. So, you know, when people think about debt buying their own home, they think about their ratios. But in a commercial aspect where you are, how do you guys view debt connected to the property? Do you have different metrics or, or what's a reasonable, comfortable level of debt 
that people should, when they look at a product like yours or a competitor and say, that's the, that's a realistic use of leverage or that's too much or that's too little. How do you view that? So it's an inter interesting question. And there's really two schools of thought to that, Darren. I, I, you know, one school of thought, you know, and that's with, with a lot of REITs is that they try to be conservative on leverage. And there's mm -hmm. this, this has been push, particularly from institutional investors that a commercial REIT is particularly have the, you know, the lowest LTV possible. Right. Um, we take a differing view. We always try to take as much as we can on the debt side. And it's because, you know, debt is cheaper than equity. I mean, in, in very simple terms. And being able to borrow as much as you can um, as and as long as you can and keeping that along the curve as long as possible gives you the max, the ma will maximize your returns over the long term. Particular, but, but again, it's predicated on what you're buying. Mm -hmm. If you're buying core market yeah. real estate with great tenancies, whether it's, again, grocery anchored retail or residential real estate with, again, typically workforce housing. So nothing fancy, but day-to-day -day living where people have to live no matter what happens in the economy, then you can be as leader as you want and you won't be burned over the long term in, in a refi situation, or you usually shouldn't be. So we always try to maximize the leverage as, as much as possible. So Say in, in, our, in our residential side, we try to get 75 to 80% leverage whenever we can on any acquisition that we do. It's the prudent thing to do in light of where the interest rates are today. I mean, look, the reality is interest rates are at two, two mm -hmm. to two and a half percent on, on mm -hmm. five-year money today, all in, if you if you look at costs. So whereas the equity yields are going to be significantly higher depending on which vehicle we're talking about. So we always try to maximize the leverage in that regards. Um, and even on the commercial side, we typically get between 50 to 65% leverage. I mean, the banks will ultimately constrain us as to what we can borrow on leverage, but we try to maximize that as well because we know over the long term, even though our leverage is higher than maybe what some of our competitors will be, will, will be more beneficial in that we'll be able to capture the upside from rents as they mature, but still have a, a consistent level of debt in place cost-wise. That will that increases that basically keeps us a, a fixed rate of cost in, in place for us over the duration of that mortgage. That's good. And how do you guys, when you're looking at uh, properties to acquire for the REITs, you know, obviously executions, everything. So what is some of the work that you guys do to make sure we're getting the right properties and at the right price? How do you go about that? So the vast majority of our product, we've, we've always, you know, we, we undertake a strict due diligence regime here internally. We look at, at any acquisition that we do is, is done through a, a team that we have here internally. There's a number of individuals that are involved, including myself, that evaluate the property based on location, the tenancies, you know, the, the quality of the property itself, the condition of the building. So we get building condition reports, environmental reports, um, we'll tour the asset, we'll check check on the tenancies do a complete right workup on on, on the entire property before we execute and, and do any and undertake any acquisition if you will and then we also confirm with the banks that they're, they're going to be there to finance as well for us um, and which is critical to to us being able to execute on that acquisition and also that it meets certain criteria i mean we won't go into certain asset classes we won't do hotels uh, we won't do service-oriented real, real estate like long-term care homes mm -hmm. um, or hotels or bars or restaurants, uh, you know, unless it's part, the restaurant itself is part of a mall that has a grocery anchored angle, if you will. So, you know, we focus on just strict certain asset classes and 
and just focus on core areas of real estate that we know will, will outperform over the long term. Um, and, and our focus on due diligence is just, again, strict due diligence and underwriting with a group of people here that have a number of years of experience, uh, many years of experience on underwriting real estate. And when you guys go in, are you passive investors in property or are you guys very active in terms of managing the property, improving the property and really optimizing it? How do you guys view that? So we typically do our own asset and property management. We, internally here, we have two, two entities. One's devoted to asset management, one's devoted to property management, and we actively manage all of our real estate. We're, we're rarely, if ever, passive investors. Mm -hmm. um, the exception, of course, is on our joint ventures in the U.S., we're down there in our joint ventures, in our multi-residential real estate. We rely on local partners who are not only partners with us on the equity, but will manage the property on our behalf. Right. That's good. Now, another question, if you don't mind. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that's been helpful for me is getting to know you guys and giving me some guidance on these are things to look for. These are things to look for on, on, on terms of make sure we're sticking to our knitting. And also red flags, as it were, whenever you're looking at any kind of real estate or, or debt products. So maybe if you wouldn't mind, Sandy, could you share, I think is good practice um, for investors, some things that from your world that would be red flags to anybody or or things that would be good green flags, like look for this and, and watch out for these things. What are some of those markers that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so, so let's start with the real estate business first. I think the great thing, I think the key things on real estate, and it's the old adage, you know, lo real estate's location, location, location. Focus on core markets, you know, you know, G the GTA, the, 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 the Montreal's of the world, the Calgary's of the world. Um, also focus on not only the quality of tenants, but the ability to enforce a, a tenant to leave in the event that um, they themselves do not pay their rent in, in the case of a residential. You know, on the multi-residential side, again, focus, an investor should really focus on not on class A, and I always say this to, to investors, don't focus on the class A you know, killer trophy asset REITs, if you will. Focus on the workforce housings of the world, the, 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 the lower quality assets. And I, and I say that because, again, while, while it's a lower price point, it's affordable housing. There's always going to be a tenant that's going to be able to occupy that, that space. On the, on the mortgage side, I tell people that if you're going to, again, invest in a mortgage product, whether it's a private or public vehicle, the key thing, focus on where the mortgages are located. Again, Core market, what's the implied LTV on that mortgage? If it's really high and it's a commercial asset, buyer beware. If it's a residential asset with a more conservative 65 to 70%, you, you should be okay in the event of a downturn. But also, I think what's critical on the mortgage business as well, and because of the short-term duration of mortgages as a whole, is the key is balance sheet and the strength of the balance sheet to weather a storm. Because, it, because of that balance sheet, is constantly rolling over. And I, I say, you know, to, the following things they should be on the lookout for. Look at the accounts receivable on that balance sheet. Do what's called a day's receivable calculation, which is basically your accounts receivable over the ink, over the, the gross revenue times to the days of the year. If that receivable balance is greater than 30 days, and I'll, I'll say, explain why in a second, but if it's greater than 30 days, materially greater, say 70 to 100 to 150 days, be wary of, of that business because there's something seriously wrong with that mortgage business. And I'll say this, and, I, and, this, and the focus on 30 days is very simple. When you and any of us here borrow money, we owe the bank 
our interest every 30 days. We have to pay our interest every 30 days. If not, we're in default. So a mortgage business by definition should have a receivable balance that shouldn't be greater than 30 days or certainly not materially more than 45 to 50 days. If it's greater than that, there's a problem with the mortgages. That's an immediate red flag. Look for mortgage businesses that raise capital that is in excess of the operational cash flow that's being generated. That's a red flag. That means, that means basically there's a chance that they're funding their actual dividends from the use of raising, from the mm. raising of capital, if you will. That's a red flag. Also look at, again, they're, they're very simply, their insolvencies and their write-offs. How many write-offs have they had? How many insolvencies have they had in the past? I mean, I'm, pr I'm proud of the fact that I can say I belong to an organization, to an organization that's never had a loan loss. That's key for us. Yeah, and I find that remarkable, by the way, because a big part of all the things you're talking about, one that you didn't mention yet, but you probably will, is the ability to actually collect, right? Like, you, yes. it's astonishing to me, you guys have never had a loan loss, and, and I, I can't imagine you guys have much in the way of, you know, old or aged receivables. You guys seem to be remarkably good at when you're, it's one thing to lend out well, you got to be able to get it paid back even better. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm very impressed with how I got you guys. And it's funny how I talk to people that look at other products, and I, I ask them questions around how well do you get repaid? And yes. they look at me like, why are you asking that? I'm like, because that's kind of important, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an old adage about lending. Put out the money. Putting out the money is one thing. Collecting is a more, more difficult challenge. I mean, yeah. there was an old expression when I was at the bank, for example, there was a lend, you know, the, 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 there was this old adage as well. You know, day two after you uh, put the money out, the, the, sec the, the second day after you put the money out was, well, where's my money? Right. Meaning, when are we getting paid back? Right. You know, forget the interest, you know, if you will. The interest is gravy, if you will. The reality is you want that mortgage to come back to you. Right. The, the, the proceeds, if you will. That's key to any mortgage. And I think anyone that, that has to take general write offs of significant amounts, there's a real problem with that business. And finally, I, I always say, look at the balance sheet, look at the cash flow statement and look at the redemptions in their funds. If the redemptions are significantly are significantly quarter over quarter. You know, that is something you need to be aware of, worry about. That's a run on the money in some cases. Well, one thing that we paid attention to is is looking at closed end versus the open-ended products that are out there, right? So if we go directly to a mortgage product and it's a closed end product or or it's, uh, it's, it's designed where I have to buy it right from the manufacturer, well, their capital that they have, it goes up and down based on me adding or me withdrawing or other people doing the same thing. And that affects their operation. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we like, uh, a mix that trades on the stock exchange is that our buying and selling of that asset doesn't interfere with the assets that you're managing of that asset, right? That, so if that, I want to yeah. sell it, I can sell it, but I don't, or if I want to buy it, I don't affect how much money you can deploy in your strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely mm. correct. I, it's, it's a very good point. And I think, you know, and I say this about private and public funds, and it, and it goes right back to the investor itself. In a public vehicle, the best, you know, if you're your typical average Canadian, you know, and I, and I'll mean, I don't mean to disparage, but I'm going to do it in the, in the nicest way possible. If you're the average Canadian that wants to get involved in the mortgage space, the best place to be is in the, is in the public markets. You have instant liquidity. If you need the cash, you generate a rate of return. That's relatively safe. You, if you need to bail out because you have, you have a lifestyle matter to deal with, you can, you can get out, you know, in a relatively quick and easy period of time. If you're in a private open-ended or closed-end fund, there's a real problem. There's a chance that you may not get all of your money back. So the people that should be involved in those private vehicles should be the, your, your accredited investors, your permitted clients, high net worth individuals and institutions should, be in, should only be in those. But the sad reality is 
is there are funds out there that go out and market to the mom and pop investors, lock them down, take significant parts of their net worth and put them into these funds and they don't see their money for years. And that's a real issue. It's an, it's an unfortunate stain on our, on our um, environment, if you will. Very cool. Uh, I think I well, almost a time here. Shoot. Um, man, we could just, this is awesome. Um, so you're in the U.S. and Canada, and I don't know if it's both for lending and for real estate. So how would you compare and contrast the two? And where would you be putting new money in Sandy before we uh, kind of wrap this up? No, fantastic question. No, we're in both U.S. and Canada, we do lending as well as investments. Traditionally speaking, our, our business on the lending side, we typically used to invest Canadian dollars into the U.S. historically um, prior to our U.S. vehicle. We typically lend Canadian dollars to borrowers in the New York tri-state area on the bridge and mezzanine space. I mean, if you look at the U.S. as a whole, there are three major bridge and mezzanine lenders that dominate 90% of the market down there. You know, Brookfield, KKR, and Blackstone. And their checks start at about $100 million. But the real, vast majority of the real estate in the New York tri-state area is still owned by mom and pop investors that have historically been in the real estate space for, you know, in some cases, well over 100 years, 150 years in some cases. Wow. So... And they don't need checks of $100 million to go out and buy a piece of real estate or develop a piece of real estate. They need 5 to $10 million. So we service a market that's in that niche, if you will, that, that is smaller checks, but really good safe rates of return in great markets. Um, so we typically did Canadian dollars, but now we're doing U.S. denominated loans as well as preferred loans as well to various investor groups in the U.S. on the residential lending side. Canada, that's been our, in Canada, that's been our core business now for well over 30 years. Um, and on the, on the acquisition side, on the real estate side, again, commercial real estate in Canada. Um, and then in the U.S., we're doing apartments, as I said, multi-residential real estate. The, the U.S. real estate market is, 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 is multiple, um, large, multiple points larger, obviously. The deal flow that we see out of the U.S. is a 10 to 1, as I call it. Um, Meaning I, for every one deal I see in Canada on whether it's commercial or residential, I will see 10 come across my desk in the U.S. every single day. Hmm. So, for example, on a typical day, I'll get about 10 deals across my desk by way of email or by email or by uh, pitch or whatever in Canada from various brokers or people that we know. In the U.S., it could be upwards of 100. And, and again, great product in great markets. You know, the U.S. is 50 great CBD core business district markets. Canada, we have six. So the depth of a product that you have in the U.S. is significantly greater than what you would have in Canada. That being said, the valuations prior to COVID, there, were, there was a gap, if you will, in that you could buy U.S. real estate cheaper than you could in Canada, not factoring in the foreign exchange. Today, it's almost at par with each other because of this, the, 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 the printing of money, if you will. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, like I say, we could go on for hours, man. They just uh, <laughs> We're going to have to get you guys back uh, on another uh, podcast sometime soon. But thanks a lot, Sandy. Thanks, Darren. And Thank uh, yeah. Thanks, James. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, 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 James. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it.